Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. One of the reasons we're doing a show today on having a pain-free back is that years ago I was a tournament tennis player, I was a servant volleyer, and I was introduced to the Gokule method through a friend of mine who showed me one of the exercises. And Esther Gokule, if you don't know who she is, she's the author of Eight Steps to a Pain-Free Back, and she started the Gokule Center about 20 years ago, and she's helped thousands of people get free of pain through the systematic process of restoring pain-free posture and movement. Now, what led her to do this is her own problems with her back during pregnancy and also crippling back pain after surgery on her back. And of course, we know that necessity is the mother of invention, but it's very hard for many of us, particularly when 80% of the American public has low back pain, to believe or to accept that there are certain exercises and ways of moving our body that will optimize what Esther Gokule calls primal architecture. It is my great pleasure and an honor to welcome Esther Gokule to its rainmaking time. Welcome to the show. Such a pleasure to be with you. The first thing I'd really like you to explain is what is primal architecture? Because this is really the basis of your method. True. And it's the kind of posture and movement patterns and architecture, I call it, that you observe in very young children, two-year-olds, for example, that you observe in our hunter-gatherer ancestors or don't even have to go that far back, our great-great-grandparents as evidenced in artwork in the museums and photographs and so on, and also in our counterparts in pre-industrial populations around the world today. So all of these groups of people share the same characteristics in their, uh, in their posture, the same shape of their spine, the same ways of bending and so on. And that is what I call primal posture. And the Gokhale method helps people recover that, restore that. Many years ago when I was introduced to somebody's translation of a part of your method, I must admit that while tennis requires precision and timing and there's a subtleness that's not obvious to onlookers, the subtlety that was translated to me vis-a-vis your methodology seemed to my conscious mind as not being rigorous enough the way I looked at it at the time to do anything with my own pain. So I was open to it at the time, but then I kind of threw it off to the side and said, it's not going to be rigorous enough to affect my body. I'm in too much pain. And I was wrong. And particularly after reading Eight Steps to a Pain-Free Back, it's obvious that if I would invest in the method that's involved in driving, sitting, walking, sleeping, things you do hours every day, that this could work for me. But talk to those of us who are not sure and have had to go to back surgery like yourself. What happened to you? It's one of our challenges working with people that they have already tried so many things that have failed. And they've been through an emotional roller coaster, investing time, investing money, investing their energy. And um, they've been disappointed and so there is a resistance to getting your hopes up and so that is one of my challenges and the challenges of my whole team of teachers convincing people to give this a try and especially since it's simple um, you know people look at us and think well so you're going to teach me a slightly different way to sit and a slightly different way to bend and and lie down and that's going to help fix my pain that two dozen medical professionals have already tried to help me with and it hasn't worked and so they're skeptical and so that is our challenge is to induce people to give it a try and usually if they give it a chance if they come see us for you know for we have 45 minute sessions they're usually sold because we can very easily demonstrate to people you know, where their distortions are from what they used to have when they were two years old and from what their ancestors used to have and what's different about their structure from, say, a village African's 
um, spinal shape. And then we can usually show them the connections between their particular compressed areas and pronated feet and slumping shoulders and so on and their particular um, challenges, you know, that they, they might have repetitive stress injury, they might have um, scoliosis, and, you know, it's very easy to show them how these measures will help. It's very intellectually compelling, and we also put them in these positions, and it feels comfortable, it feels strange, but in a way it feels strangely familiar, you know, it's what they used to do when they were little. So, you know, people have to be open-minded enough to get the book or watch the DVD or come for a session, and that usually does it. Then they see that there's depth, there's thought. It's a well-considered process, and it's something quite profound there. Now, you were born in India, right? I was actually born in Holland, Okay. my mother being Dutch, but my father being Indian, I was raised in India. And then I came to this country when I was 15. When did you start to have back problems? What happened to you? Well, I had a couple of incidences early in my teens. Like I was in, in college and someone dared me to put my leg behind my neck because I was, I'm, I was and am rather flexible. And I did that without warming up and I ended up with a big back spasm in an episode and I, you know, I didn't understand it. There's a lot of fear when something like that first happens to you and you'd have no idea what's going on except that it hurts like heck. And I ended up in the ER and, you know, it died down. But then I had a couple more episodes after pulling a windsurfing sail. And then at that time I ended up five days on my back with, um, and, but the worst of it was when I was pregnant with my first child. I was nine months pregnant. I had horrible sciatic pain down my left leg. I wouldn't respond to anything, not conservative measures, not alternative measures. And I was walking around the block every two hours th- during the night to try and get my back out of severe spasm. It wasn't livable. And then uh, the MRI showed a very large herniation at L5-S1. And so I opted for surgery. And it was a big shock to my system because I'd always been very healthy and I'd been a yoga model in Bombay, very athletic. And it was a shock that something that drastic would happen to me in my mid-20s, moreover. And, um, but the surgery helped some, but I still had twinges and I wasn't allowed to carry heavy things and I was advised not to have any more children because I had bulging discs and a vulnerable back and so forth. So that was a big compromise for me. And in spite of following all the directions, I ended up having a re-herniation of the same L5-S1 disc, sciatic pain all over again. They were offering me a second surgery. So this was not looking good. You know, you don't want to make a habit of back surgery. Um, And so I was forced to cast a wider and wider net, and that was the beginning point. That's how I came to all these things. Now, you went to many different countries and many different places in your research. Talk about that. Yeah, so, you know, I, I studied techniques that were already um, being taught, and I was, I've been influenced by a number of things. So that was my first point of departure. And um, Feldenkrais, Alexander Technique, um, Bess Mensendieck's Technique, um, the, the one that has influenced me the most is Noel Perez's. Um, hers is more anthropologically informed posture work. And that really resonated for me because I grew up in India and my mom, being very much an Indophile, was always taking us to villages and on every holiday we'd go to some tribal area or village area and she would always be pointing people out for how remarkably they could labor without getting into trouble. Like the fruit sellers would have these huge baskets on their head and the sweeper at home could do the whole, clean the whole uh, house on her um, haunches and so on. So my eyes were kind of tuned and my, this, this resonated for me. It made sense that the solution had to lie 
in how one moves one's body and that these people who live close to the ground have a lot to offer us, have a lot of wisdom intact. And so that's what attracted me. And and then I was led to travel widely. And I visited Africa. I I did research in Africa, three trips to Brazil, um, Ecuador, Thailand, India. And what you see in these cultures is that people move incredibly beautiful beautifully. It's like watching gazelles and it's captivating. There's something very right about it. And they're also pain-free and they have very particular characteristics. And so, you know, what what I teach people is what these people are doing, how to mimic them. Um, And my course, which is six-lesson course and is now being taught by 35 teachers around the world and a growing number of teachers. And we're very excited because we feel like we're reaching a tipping point and people are beginning to hear about us. And, you know, that's ultimately what it's going to take. We need large numbers of people influencing each other, which is what you have in these countries. You know, if you go to a village in Africa, everybody's influencing how the baby is being held. And, you know, they, everybody's modeling each other. They they bend in this particular way. They sit in a particular way and so on. And that's what we need ultimately. But we're getting there one back at a time. Your background as a biochemist from Harvard and Princeton and your background in acupuncture from the San Francisco School of Oriental Medicine comes into play through some type of integration, though. You had that background for a reason, What do you think the reason is now doing what you're doing today? What a fine way of asking that. Um, You you know, I grew, my mother used to take care of abandoned babies, orphans and just abandoned babies because her background was in as a registered nurse. And we used to be recruited. She didn't want us to grow up spoiled brats. So she used to bring these babies into the family and all of us would help take care of them, nurse them back to health while their papers were getting settled and they could be adopted. So that was my early exposure to alternative medicine because she was ahead of her time. She was already doing all kinds of alternative stuff and mostly TLC and massage and, you know, good nutrition and so on for these babies. But that influenced me a great deal. And when I applied to Harvard, it actually, I, I said I wanted to do research in alternative medicine, having no idea, of course, that, you know, that I would be doing this, which does count. And so I studied biochemistry. And what I got from there is a rigor and a, an appreciation of scientific method and a respect for that baseline of, of reasoning. And um, that I'm very thankful for. And, of course, you know, this country has this marvelous liberal arts education. So I was studying, you know, oral literature and I was studying anthropology. And I just found it. I couldn't decide what my major should be. I found it also fascinating. But I ended up um, doing biochemistry. and, um, and And then after that, I wanted to do Chinese. I had already been influenced by one of my best friend's mother, who was an MD, to do Chinese medicine because she made the statement. She was an MD in New York at the time. I was in Princeton. And she said that if she could do it over again, she would do Chinese medicine the Chinese way. And that I respected her. And I thought, well, maybe that's what I should do instead of going to med school, which was my original plan. And so that's what I did. And here was a very, that was a bit of a leap for me because I was worried that what if it's just placebo and, you know, you spend all this time studying something and really it doesn't have, you know, so much inherent content. It's mostly placebo. I was concerned about that. But what it, it, it's been really valuable for me because it's a totally different model. It's a different way of looking at the body, and I use it very much right now because it's all about creating flow, and it's kind of an electrical approach to creating flow, and what I do now is a hardware approach to creating flow is one way I look at it. How interesting. 
<laughs> it, it really is. I find myself jumping around from model to model as what, using whatever gives most insight, gives most results, and so on. So, you know, you don't want kinks in your channels if you want to think about it in a Chinese medicine way. And if you, now I always tell my students, if you don't want to think Chinese medicine, then think about lymph and blood. And you don't want to have your knees kind of rotated in and your feet pronated and you're blocking the flow of your natural um, fluids, your blood and, and lymph and so on. And so, you know, that's one way of looking at what it is I'm helping people with. Your book seems to turn everything we've been told and everything that's being transmitted about having a pain-free back on its head, from sleeping to sitting to walking. I want you to talk to us about some of these things. One of the things I also find very frustrating is most of us cannot find good chairs. Well, I'm very, very happy to be able to make an announcement. First time I'm doing an announcement about really? I've, I'm actually creating a chair. Oh, wow. People ask me all the time, what do I recommend? And I always say, buy something really inexpensive and then just fit the back with a stretch sit element. You know, it could be a towel, it could be a flannel sheet, and I've described how to use that in my book. And if you care, if you want me to, I can describe it over the call. Or we have a stretch sit cushion, which has little nubs on it that give traction. But the idea is that you could be stretching your back as you sit. So you're getting a little bit of traction, you know, while you're keyboarding or um, sitting on your sofa watching TV or sitting in your car. And that makes sitting not only more comfortable, but in fact, therapeutic. And that's huge. And so that's so easily available. And the modern chairs, the ergonomic chairs and so on, tend to have, they're supporting an S-shaped curve in the spine. And I teach that an S-shaped curve is just a modern distortion. And what you really want is a J-spine, not an S-spine, not a C-spine that everybody knows, that slumping kind of C-shape that we make with our bodies. We, we know that's not good. But what we think we should be doing, which is an S-shape, is also problematic. And what we really want to do is a J-spine with the behind behind and the rest stacked really effortlessly on top of that pelvis that's tipped forward a bit, your, your tail out behind you, I describe it, because this is what you see in little kids. They have their behinds out behind them. If you look at any Greek statue, they're not tucking their pelvis. They've got their butts out behind them. And then the upper lumbar area where we think we're supposed to have a natural um, lumbar curve, their upper lumbar area is pretty straight, not very curved at all. And so that is what I teach. I teach the kind of spinal shape you find in village Africans, you find in the Greek statues, you find in little kids, populations that don't have problems with their back. And I think right there that's pretty compelling to give it a try. It also makes more sense just, you know, rationally, and I can describe why it makes more sense to have a J-spine rather than an S-spine. I'd like you to do that, but I want to say one thing about this, which is that there is this assumption, I think energetically, that most of our postures and our structures aren't malleable. I really think that a lot of people carry sub-subconscious sense that they're not malleable and that once you have a structure and you form a particular way that you can't change it. It's kind of you're stuck with it. And that assumption, I think, is the first thing that has to go when you start talking about most of us think that we are to have an S-spine and what you're teaching is what's in the villages, which is a J-spine. The first thing we have to get over is that we can't do anything about it. Yeah, people tend to either exaggerate the difficulty or trivialize it. You know, they think, oh, yeah, yeah, posture, I've just got to sit up straight and that's that's it right? And then they just kind of force something which they think is good posture, which is actually terrible posture. And then after a while it gets tiring and it doesn't feel too good. And then they go back to doing their relaxed and slumped posture, which they know is bad. And they just go back and forth between those two. Most people do that. Upright and tense, 
or relaxed and slumped. And in fact, both of those are problematic. And what you want is to be upright and relaxed. But what it takes is a well-positioned pelvis. Pelvis is like the foundation of the structure. It's your base. And if it is tucked, that's going to cause problems up higher one way or another. And so the truth of the matter is that it is neither trivial nor super difficult to change your structure. And what it, it, the shape and the depth of it, in my experience, takes about, it takes about six lessons for me to help someone to transform their body and with it, their lives. I mean, we place our bar very, very high with our course. I mean, if someone doesn't feel like their life has been transformed, um, then we, we are looking for how we could have, you know, taught better. But we're quite spoiled. We get a lot of people using that kind of language. So that's, you know, the possibility for change is huge, but it does take some training, and it takes step-by-step approach and the right guidelines because all many of the current guidelines are problematic. They do more harm than good, like you were indicating, you know, like I'm, I wish I weren't turning things on their head. And by the way, that's exactly the same line that Joan Baez used. She, she gives us a quote um, uh, to use publicly that says, every, you know, this method turns everything we've thought about um, posture on its head. Well, and she's right. It's true. She's it's right. right. It is very different. You know, I'm not saying, I say, I say don't tuck the pelvis. I say tuck the ribs. I say not S-shaped curve, but J-spine. Um, not chin up and chest out. Rather, chin is going to angle down and the chest is also going to kind of angle. It's going to come down in the front so that the back can lengthen. And so on. You know, there are a lot of, I say, don't do crunches because those are well-named. They crunch your discs and they crunch your nerves and you don't really want to put your discs under that kind of pressure. And it's not necessary. There are much better abdominal exercises that I describe in my book, I describe in my DVD. And the best of all is, of course, to get hands-on guidance. And now the course is available widely all over the world. Um, but if you'd like me to describe any of those techniques, I'm very happy to on this call. If there's something in particular you'd like to describe, that's fine. There's so much to talk to you about, but if there's something you want to describe right now, you're most welcome. Oh, let me do a very quick little thing because it's so easy and it does so much change for people, and I call this a shoulder roll. And so you take one shoulder at a time and you go a little forward, a little up, and then don't involve your torso, but take just the arm and the shoulder back, 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 and relax and settle it into its new home, which is actually an old home where you used to be when you were two. You do the same with the other shoulder. You go a little forward, a little up, a lot back, and you completely relax, and you have just ratcheted the soft tissue of your shoulder back a notch is how it feels. And the cool thing about resetting your shoulders this way is that it's sustainable. It's not taking some muscle tension to hold it in place because, A, that's not practical. B, it's not healthy. And instead, you're just resetting them where they belong or closer to where they belong. And now you relax, and they will stay there. It's very practical. It's very healthy. And it's much better than pulling your shoulders back or sitting up straight, you know, that's a direction we hear a lot in our culture, sit up straight, sit up, stand up straight. And I say, no, sit up smart. Don't tense up your low back and thrust out your chest to give the appearance of being straight. That's not the way to do it. And if your shoulder slumping is bothering you, then just take your shoulder, a little forward, a little up, lots back, relax. It's going to feel a bit odd because you suddenly feel like you have little bitty, Tyrannosaurus Rex arms, but you get used to it, and you know you. It doesn't look odd. It looks very nice, and allows you to breathe better. Allows your circulation to and from your arms to be better. Stops pulling you into an increasingly hunched upper back shape, and so on. So that's a really simple one. 
that everyone can just start doing. And now you come a little closer to your keyboard and you come a little closer into your steering wheel, though you do want to keep a safe distance from the airbag. What you don't want is to just slump your shoulders forward to be reaching everything like your keyboard and so on. I'm so glad you're making a chair because I have two $300 chairs that are terrible. I have terrible pain in them. And now I'm sitting on a bench with a pillow underneath me because I've been in so much pain with these chairs. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing I teach that's you can usually modify a chair easily. We have a stretch sit cushion. It's our only product so far. I I pride myself on being product light in my approach. You know, mostly I teach people how to master their own structure. But there's room for, you know, if you're going to sit all day, you want a comfortable chair. So I am creating a chair. It'll probably be a couple more months. And But we also have a stretch sit cushion. And if you put that in any chair, it facilitates the stretching your back out and that, by the way, I have a tele-seminar. If people go to my website, egwellness.com, then you can sign up for the te- free tele-seminar. And in that, we teach you how to, you know, it has video and so on, and it teach you how to stretch it and do a shoulder roll and so on. And that is really a good way to approach sitting all day. Why did you spend so much time in your book on sleeping? When you think about it, it seems as if there's not a lot we can do with how we sleep, and yet you spent a good amount of time on sleeping. And I want you to talk about it because that's something we do at least six to eight hours a day. Yeah, and that's why. You know, it's just a low-hanging fruit as to how I see it. You're lying there on a bed. Now, why don't we put a little extra traction, a little stretch in your back, whether you're lying on your back or you're lying on your side. And right there, you've got the potential benefit of eight hours of stretching your back. It's hard to get any kind of therapy that is going to match that, you know, that, you know, people have machines and expensive procedures to put traction in their back, but... You know, here you have the possibility of getting eight hours of stretch just for the extra one or two seconds of effort of positioning yourself well and stretched out at the beginning of the night. So this is one of the easier techniques to learn. People get that from the book. And, you know, I, what you, what's involved is you kind of prop your upper body onto your elbows. You dig into the bed and down towards your feet, and then you put one vertebra down at a time, next one, next one. You're kind of unrolling your back onto the bed, if you can visualize that. And that's the technique for stretch lying on the back. And then stretch lying on the side is a little trickier because we also use it not only to stretch the back, but also to learn this J-spine shape. Because, you know, you can set your pelvis just so and then set your upper back just so. And now the bed serves as a kind of traction, uh, stretch unit. You know, it's keeping you in that stretched out um, good shape and creating muscle memory so that it becomes easier to find that shape when you're standing, when you're walking and such. Just a huge amount of benefit available, you know, for a very little effort. Lots of bang for the buck there. It's a pity not to use that sleeping time to stretch you out and make you feel more comfortable in your life in general. There's going to be people listening that are going to say, look, I move all over the bed. I sleep on my side. Talk about sleeping on our side and pillows and what you're recommending, even though people are going to get the inner workings and the details in your book. Yeah, so... On the side is a little complex in terms of pillows, you know, because just, just for beginners, you know, when people are first starting out, sometimes their backs are a little inflamed. There's not that much uh, height in the back, you know, length in the back. Everything is squished in there. So it's helpful to make it closer to neutral, which means a pillow between the knees to the ankles, long ways and may mean a pillow in front of you to not let your shoulder slump forward, may mean a pillow under your waist if you're a woman and you have a narrow waist and wider hips and you don't want your back to sag. Now, as your back heals and you become 
less inflamed and not in pain, then your body will easily tolerate. As it becomes nice and long, it will easily tolerate a little twist, a little sag, no problem. But it's true that there are a few more props involved in the beginning of, of learning to stretch lie on the side. Um, but, you know, over time you become more and more tolerant. That's one of the benefits of learning to stretch lie because all that extra length makes you much more tolerant of different beds, of different mattresses, of when you travel, even sleeping on the floor, not a problem. And it's clear that, you know, in, in our his prehistoric past, the floor was probably all we had. So we're clearly adapted to be able to do that. But we've gotten so squished up in our spines that we need just the perfect everything, you know. So in the beginning, I teach people to make it more neutral and then and long, and then they tolerate better. I know that what you're doing is right on, even helping people learn how to walk again. That's my favorite lesson to teach because it just feels so good. It's so sensuous and you feel like you have two little jets under you, you know, because we're learning how to use the glutes to propel forward. And so it's squeeze, 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 and you feel this little propulsion and you're just gliding along. I call it glide walking. It's really plain walking, but, you know, what we do these days is so far away from that that I think it merits a special name. And so I call it glide walking. And there are a lot of components. I teach it in lesson. I start in lesson one of my course, teaching people how to squeeze their gluteus medius is a very critical muscle to waken up. And a lot of people, for gluteus medius has been asleep for a number of decades and so we want to wake that muscle up and have it involved in squeezing in every step we take. It helps you land softly. It helps your pelvis be in the right position. It helps you externally rotate your legs so you don't have so much knee problems and that your feet don't pronate and you don't have so much bunions and so on. It's just so important. And it provides so much exercise and people build up muscle. They look better and all the extra muscle drives up your basal metabolism rate, so it turns out to be a weight loss technique. I mean, it just is so rich, and it's such a pity if we shuffle along and miss out on all that natural exercise and then, you know, have to try to make up for that, like by doing uh, five reps of these or half an hour of this. It's not a, it's not a substitute. You can't make up for what you're missing out from not doing a normal walk. Yeah. So I, I love walking. I love teaching walking. But it is a little complex, and so it's really in lesson five and six that people um, really put that, you know, get to understand it. Very rewarding to see it and for them to feel it. There's a lot of people who are meditating more and sitting quietly and giving themselves 15, 20 minutes a day to just sit. And they sit on the floor, they cross their legs. And a lot of people, like myself, have low back pain in L5. And it's not as comfortable anymore to sit that way. I believe that in our society, because we didn't grow up sitting on the floor nor squatting on toilets, that we don't really have the structure around our hips to do full squats or sit on the floor without support. And so I teach people, I encourage people to sit on a, you know, a cushion or a little bench or, or a chair and that that's equally spiritual, you know. It's, it's not, you're not handicapping your meditation efforts by sitting on a chair or a prop or something that's appropriate. The key thing is to be able to have your back upright and relaxed. If you are sitting on the floor, you will probably soon find yourself choosing between upright and tense or slumped and relaxed and slumped, and neither of those is good. So, you know, give yourself the props that you need that are culture appropriate, you know, and that's what I teach people with yoga too, that, you know, the poses that the yogis developed by yogis, for yogis, are not necessarily the most beneficial for people in our culture. 
So, though I think yoga is just such a rich and wonderful um, realm, uh, we want to pick and choose what it is we do from it that is appropriate to our culture. And we're, I'm actually in process of writing a book about uh, about this way, a, a different way of approaching yoga. I think that would be fantastic. And I think that since most of us really have to unlearn something we never learned anyway, but we have to unlearn whatever we're doing now. I think that that would be fitting because so many people are going to yoga now. I think it would be a great book. Thank you. I, I hope so. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about the difference between tipping the pelvis and swaying the back. You are asking such good questions. Thank it's you. wonderful when the interviewer has actually read the book and is right on. Thank you. So this is an important distinction. Though you want your behind out behind you, you don't want to thrust it out. You don't want to be straining and tightening up your low back muscles and then sticking your butt out behind you. That is not a good way. And so... I teach people to kind of squeeze their butt while they're walking. That's part of the equation of having the pelvis settle well, as well as learning to relax various muscles in the front. And then for the upper back to get rid of the sway. See, a sway is an unnatural curve that happens much higher than L5-S1, maybe in the L1, L2 area, sometimes L3. You know, and that that's an area where you don't want to curve. It's a unhealthy air curve that happens up higher and that's what we call a sway and to get rid of that you don't want to be tucking the pelvis but rather tucking the ribs and that is a really important measure very difficult for some people to learn the people who need it the most who sway their back and who have gotten into the habit of sitting up straight and thrusting out their chest and they have a big hollow in their low back those are the people who need to rotate their ribcage forward is one way I describe it, almost like a mini crunch. I, and I teach people to put their fists on their the lower border of the ribcage and kind of nudge the bones back there as a way of rotating the ribcage and flattening out that excessive curve that's too high up and we are calling a sway. But this is a tricky, tricky maneuver to learn because when you do it, you feel the full extent of your slumping shoulders. And now the thing is to isolate and do the shoulder roll that I was describing earlier. And that will make people feel a bit better, but they still usually feel really hunched and it's hard for them to believe that that isn't hunched. And even when I teach people in class, I help line them up like this, and then they look at them, they feel terribly hunched, like they feel like, oh, my God, I'm going to fall on my face. And then they look in the mirror, and they're shocked because it looks fine, but it feels so weird. And that's a hard place to get to on, on you know, by themselves. That's a hard place for people to find on their own. And that's why we, you know, I'm putting a lot of my effort right now into training teachers. And I'm very excited that we have so much broader reach now. We have teachers who are traveling to places where there is demand for the course. We have a place on our website where people can request the course. And when we have enough people, we send teacher out to teach. And increasingly, there are now local teachers teaching our, it's called Gokhale Method Foundations. And it's just six lessons, small groups, one and a half hour each lesson, maximum group size is eight, so each person is shepherded to this different architecture, their primal architecture, and we charge only 450 for that course. You are teaching in the United States, in the United Kingdom, Europe, and Israel right now, correct? Yes, and, you know, it's expanding. We have lots of demand in Australia and New Zealand and Canada. We're teaching in Canada as well. And um, the Bahamas, we have a teacher. So we have increasing coverage. And now the book is being translated into Russian, Korean, Chinese, and Portuguese. Oh, my God, that, that is, is so really, exciting. Oh, It is. It really is. And you know, one, another thing that gave, gave us a lot of exposure was that there was a one-hour 
um, public television program about my work. It was called Back Pain, the Primal Posture Solution. And I was the host, and I taught my various techniques, and uh, it was very well done. So that has also brought a lot more awareness of the technique. That's fantastic. I want to ask you, even though I know that you already described this in your book, I'd like you to share your view now on cervical pillows and rolls. Yeah, so there's this notion in our culture that we're supposed to have a curve in our neck. It's part of this whole S-shaped curve spine philosophy. And I teach J-spine, and, you know, the upper part has relatively little curve, including in the cervical spine. So that's an area where I think people should have length, not tons of curve. Now, if they already have a lot of curve, it doesn't feel nice to have that curve kind of suspended midair with no pillow touching it. So I, I, I teach people to bunch up their pillows to just comfort the area, but not to use a roll to the point that you're exaggerating your curve there. Then you're going in the wrong direction. See, I want people to be lengthening and making their curves more gentle, not exaggerating them. So in a roundabout way, because I know you did a lot of explanation on that, the bottom line on the cervical pillows is what? Only in very, very extreme cases of, of having very big curves do they make sense. And they don't make sense for most people. So I tell people to just use regular pillows. Right, because you want both the head and the neck on the pillow, correct? And the shoulders, like an inch or two of the shoulders on the pillow as well. See, everybody, this really is <laughs> different. <laughs> yeah, it's a complete... The reason I like the shoulders to be a little bit on the pillow is then that allows the neck to be kind of in line with the rest of the back. And also, if the shoulders or upper back is a little bit on the pillow, that helps this tucking the ribs thing, you know, to help the sway in the back. A little difficult to understand just over the radio, but it's a very important concept, and it is unusual for people to not feel better sleep after learning this technique. You know, I, I was just looking at my, I just taught at San Jose, and we had, um, you know, 17 evaluation forms come, came back, and I counted this time how many people commented on improved sleep, 14 out of 17. I wish you were selling pillows. <laughs> simple. I, I don't have any special pillows there. It's a simple pillow, simple, simple, five, $6 pillow from Target. And it's what you do on the pillow that's important. Pretty powerful. We're going to talk a little bit about the inner corset because this really flies in the face of everything we're being told about what to do with abdominal exercises. And I know that it's something that needs to be seen and you need to go through the experience of it. But I really would like to invite you to talk about it because so many of us are rushing to the gym and doing abdominal exercises that we shouldn't be doing. I know you touched a little bit on this regarding crunches, but talk about the inner corset if you would. Sure. So the inner corset consists of the deeper abdominal muscles and deepest back muscles, which all together form a kind of brace. And then that makes you more slender and more tall. And in that process, you are easing apart the vertebrae, creating more room for the nerves and the discs and so on. And it is your ticket to an active lifestyle without wear and tear. So if you're going to play tennis, for example. <laughs> Which I don't do because I'm in too much back pain to do it. Oh, but we've got to turn that around. I, I have so many people who go back to their sports and so on. You know, you don't want to start there. You want to develop your confidence and first do everyday life well. But I always tell people don't ever give up on anything, you know. You don't want to be foolhardy. But once you know um, how to manage your body, it's incredible how well-designed it is and how resilient and how many things it can do, you know. For me, by the way, you know, remember I was told not to have any more kids? I've had two more kids. Once I learned how to work with my body, zero back pain, no twinges, no aches, nothing, 22 years. Wow. So that's the level of confidence I want to help people reach. 
And, you know, I don't move furniture. That's a job I wouldn't take up given my history of, you know, back surgery. But short of that, there's nothing I don't do. I feel extremely confident. You know, I can work with my body. I can play any sport, lift things, no problem. So anyway, coming back to that, the inner corset is a very key part of that um, of that uh, ability to sustain wear and tear. Actually, there's a very sad study that was done, pu- published in the British Journal of Medicine. And the finding was that elite Teenage tennis players have the same level of arthritic change in their backs that the average 60-year-old has. And that is just so sad. It's grotesque. You know, we Why? We're, Why? Because they're pounding, because they don't know this inner corset. You know, they're just, you know, maybe they do some crunches, but they're not using the right muscles. They're not using those muscles as they twist and as they... Um, have all those impacts and so instead their bones are just stressing up against each other and bone on bone stress induces calcium to get deposited and you know that's your arthritis right there and just because everybody has it you know by age 50 does not make it normal does not make it natural that's a pretty shocking story that you're telling I think it's really sad and I, I, you know, I, there's so many groups of people who need this this information. I think of it as body secrets. You know, it's you don't want to live your life without it. I really think it should begin in the schools. I agree, and I have tried many ways to reach it to schools. It's not easy. You know, this is an area where there's not much time. Kids are overscheduled. Schools are underfunded. It's very difficult. And so I am still trying, but not trivial. And so meanwhile, you know, I teach whoever is open and willing to learn. And that's becoming an increasing number of people. We're getting more and more young people, which is very cool. Have you had classes of children or teenagers? We, we do. We have. We have, a, we have a teen class and we have children's classes. And it is extremely rewarding. But I find that it's hard to schedule them because they're busy doing so many things, hard to get them to show up at a particular time in a consistent way. I see. I think it needs to go through the schools, and we're going to be trying that. I think it would be fantastic. There's so many things that children need to learn that are not being provided in the schools, even the whole thing about the water that they drink and the food that they eat and where their seeds yeah. come from, and it goes on and on. But this is yeah. so critical to everything and will impact it their is. entire it's life. Also so, it's so accessible. You know, there's, there's no reason to not do it. You know, there's, it's just misinformation and a lack of knowledge. That's all that stands in our way. So we should be able to fill that in. That's one of my big missions is to reach the next generation because it's getting worse and worse. You know, their teenagers now have really high back pain rates. And, you know, it's one of the better inheritances people can pass to their kids is to help them have good structure And so, you know, kids can take our courses, and it's so critical that they have that base. I love it that you have been highly referred by Helen Barkin, MD, who's in neurology at the Mayo Clinic, who says the greatest contribution ever made to non-surgical back pain treatment. And you also have the bravo from the orthopedic community, which I find very refreshing, to the extent that you have, I'd like to know to what extent after 20 years you feel that you are getting support. I know that there are a lot of doctors that refer business to you and a lot of patients that you've helped not have to go through back surgery. But what has been your take on the orthopedic community? They're very supportive in that they find the theories down to earth, logical, um, and promising. Now, the way medicine is set up, it's the internal medicine doctors and family practice doctors that are incentived to refer to us because they're, you know, it's just set up that way. Um, And so that's who we get the most referrals from, you know, the internal medicine, family practice doctors, they keep getting the same 
patient coming back with the same back pain because this failed and that failed. And when they send them to us, it actually works. And so that is, they appreciate not having to, you know, just keep failing their patients that provide them a referral that actually um, helps. So that, they've been our friends. The, the obstacles in the way is that we don't have data yet. We ha- don't have a study and that is about to begin. We're trying to raise funds. Um, Palo Alto Medical Foundation is a nonprofit organization, and they, we are trying to um, raise more money so that this study can proceed. And so that's one thing. And the other thing is that insurance companies don't always cover what we offer. And so, you know, doctors are hesitant to prescribe something that insurance doesn't cover. Or they don't know that it covers. You know, they only have 10 or 15 minutes with their patients and, you know, then to have a discussion about why doesn't the insurance cover this and so on is a tricky, challenging one. And so we are working on that. We are trying to, you know, it's completely in the interest of insurance companies to embrace us and to use us. We can save them millions well, actually, more like hundred billions. I was going to say, I, th- I think it's more like billions. Is right. It's billions. Yeah, it's a hundred billion a year on back pain alone, and that's not counting neck pain and repetitive stress injuries and you know all the other things that healthy structure also helps with. So we'll get there, but you know, insurance companies are sometimes very slow-moving animals. So we just have to be patient. And they'll catch up and realize it's in their interest to have people educated this way. Um, one of my students, who is a Google uh, worker, he put it very eloquently. He said, um, I think after he had taken the course and it helped him with his sciatic pain and, and that all these very, you know, best of the best doctors had not been able to help him with. And he said that I think if Esther's given half the chance, she if, if, if Esther's given the chance, she could cut the healthcare budget in half. <laughs> wow, that's pretty profound. That's pretty um, dramatic statement. But, uh, you know, he's, he, I think he meant it. And, and they, I certainly, you know, these methods certainly could help a lot. Let's talk about the feet. I want to talk about the fact that so many of us women wear the wrong shoes. We wear heels. And a lot of us need insoles and different types of devices put in our shoes. I want you to talk about that whole realm. So I think it's a very complicated arena. By the way, I think a small heel is not a problem, you know, and I mean up to an inch and a half or so. Can even be helpful for someone who has tight hamstrings, allows their pelvis to antivert, allows their buttocks to work better, and so on. And they don't want to only wear heels because then you let your muscles adapt to a short resting length. But I'm one of the few posture experts who is not set against heels. Now, of course, the very tall stiletto heels, that's another story. That doesn't work well. But with the human foot, you know, we are actually designed to be able to be barefoot or have minimal footwear, but... Most modern people have so much distortion in their feet from standing poorly, from um, walking poorly, that we've lost some of the ligamentous structure. You know, that's like your scaffolding that holds everything together in the feet. So most people's feet are spread out. They have flat feet. They're spread, um, and they've, they're not healthy, and they don't have very good muscle strength. And they also don't have knowledge of how to stand and how to walk and how to use the muscles in walking. The foot muscles are made to grab the floor and push the floor behind you, um, sending you propelled forward. And people don't know how to do that. They also tend to stand in such a way that the weight is on the front part of the foot, um, you know, damaging the bunion area, giving plantar fasciitis and so on. I love to see people who have those kind of problems come into our course because it's rare that we don't help them. I mean, it's so important for them to learn how to stand and walk well, and it usually fixes the problem. And so um, 
there are certain categories of things I particularly like to see. You know, I love it when people with scoliosis come in or all kinds of sciatic pain and um, repetitive stress injuries in the arms. That is so commonly helped. And a host of feet problems. Feet problems are so... I mean, I almost could have made my book uh, <laughs> titled Eight Steps to Pain-Free Feet because it's a kind of blind spot in modern times. But I don't have a simple thing. Like, I think we've gone too far to an extreme set, you know, people running around barefoot on cement. Um, I think it needs to be built up, and it works for some people, but not. I think it's a very complicated matter. And, and people need to, you know, learn to walk before they run and learn to stand before they walk. And, you know, we like to start people out sitting and, and lying down because that already starts the process of normalizing the spine and optimizing the muscles and so on. So I love working with feet, and there's so much to be gained. You know, we've had people who've had five bunion surgeries with the sixth one scheduled, and they come in and they cancel the surgery. And this this particular woman I'm thinking of went back to a dog walking business. So that's a pretty good indication of how well she got. What are bunions and why do people get them? Bunions are, they're on the um, first metatarsophalangeal joint. So that's kind of, um, it's on your, like at the base of the big toe. And from having weight on that area inappropriately, so the feet are turned in and there's pressure on that area, it starts turning, kind of thrusting the big toe towards the outside of the body. So instead of facing forward, it starts kind of taking a right turn. Your right foot, right big toe takes a right turn towards the outside. And that can get very exaggerated, so there's almost like a 90-degree angle there in some people. And then that can become painful. They need operations. It can become a big problem. And shoes don't fit and so on. So that's a bunion. And what's important is to stop having the weight go there. And um, there's a technique I call kidney bean shaping foot. Hard to describe. Yeah. Hard to learn. <laughs> but it's really important towards getting rid of the pressure on the bunions. And everybody can learn that. You talk about also how we should stand on our heels. Now, everything you're talking about has to be seen in your book and in the DVD and actually experienced in class. I realize that. But when you talk about how we should be standing on our heels, explain what that means to people. I don't mean entirely on your heels. Right. But a lot of the weight belongs on the heels. In our species, heels are huge compared with our primate cousins. They have dense you know, cross-fiber construction. They're made for weight-bearing. And the front of the foot easily gets destroyed. And so you don't want to just park your hips forward and have all the weight kind of go forward. You know, that happens. Like people lock their knees back and they lock their hips forward. And that is the origin of a lot of foot problems. And then they also tuck the pelvis, the butt isn't working, and the heels come up too early and the weight goes to the front of the foot too much or too early. So that's, that's the, you want the weight on the heels, mainly on the heels, in standing and then remaining there for a very long time, even through walking. What do you think about insoles? I think it's a good adaptation for most people's feet. See, most people's feet don't have much strength and they don't have very good ligamentous structure. So they're all spread out and misshapen. And then having an insole serves two functions. One, it gives you a kind of bottom line, a safety net, so that your feet are not going to displace or you know collapse beyond that point and create still further distortions. And the second thing is that it can serve like a, a make-believe contour in the ground you know we are made to walk on contoured surfaces and we don't have that very much you know we've got cement we've got asphalt we've got very straight smooth surfaces in most places and our feet don't get much 
exercise, those arch muscles in there. We just use them, those, those layers of muscles like padding, you know, they're made to work. And so if you have an insole, you can kind of pretend that it's a contour and you can grab it and start developing some strength in your feet and at the same time protect against losing still more of your ligament structure in your foot. So I think of insole as a, I think of it not as a passive thing, not as a crutch, but rather as a kind of training device. And it doesn't have to be fancy. In fact, you don't want it to be fancy because you want your foot to change and then you'll need something different, a different shape or height of insole. And you also don't want it to be too rigid. So I don't like very rigid, very expensive, very fixated things, except for extreme cases where, you know, someone's feet needs that. But for most people, I, I look upon insoles as training devices, and I'm not very picky about just how they are. So where do we get them? I mean, where do you suggest getting them? <laughs> um, we actually, at our center, we have very inexpensive ones that we sell people and I don't think they're even listed on our website, but they will be very soon. So egwellness.com or people can call our center. We have very few products, but um, we're selective. You know, the stretch sit cushion is a good one. And then we have our DVD and our book. Mm, that's about it right now. I'm so appreciative that you've taken an hour to be with us and to share about your work and about eight steps to a pain-free back and about the chair that's coming and the new book that's coming. And I just want to tell you how honored I am to have you on the show. And I'm so glad for all the work that you've been doing. And I look forward to taking your class. It's been such a pleasure. I really appreciated your very insightful questions. And um, I hope that your audience benefits and enriches their lives going forward. Thank you so much, Esther Galkale. 